Uh, good morning. How are you doing? Good. I'm glad that you did stop, though, because I, um, I'm already in trouble, a lot to cover, and the time, the clock is ticking. And I want to just let you know there's a very thin line between a long sermon and a hostage situation. Okay, so, <laughs> so we all need to pray. What that means is um, if you work with me, we interact together, things go better usually. So if you nod and smile as I teach, I'll know you're getting it. And then we'll stay on track. If you don't, I'll assume you're not getting it and I'll have to keep teaching. We'll be here longer. OK, that's how it works with me, uh, generally speaking. Um, the title of my message today is to know him, to know him. And it's very interesting. I want to read a story to you that was told by an older preacher who told of a very young minister who was interviewing for his very first pastorate, fresh out of seminary. And the pulpit committee at this particular church invited him over for an interview. And the committee chairman, as they got started, looked at the young man and he asked him, he says, you know, your Bible pretty, pretty, pretty well, young man. And he said, and the minister said, yeah, pretty good. And the chairman asked, well, well, which part do you know best? And he responded saying, well, I know the New Testament best. And he said, well, which part of the New Testament do you know best? The chairman asked. And the young minister said several parts. So the chairman said, well, why don't you tell us the story of the prodigal son? And the young man said, well, fine. And he began. He says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who went down to Jericho by night and fell upon stony ground. And the thorns choked him half to death. The next morning, Solomon and his wife, Gomorrah, came by and carried him down to the ark for Moses to take care of. But as he was going through the eastern gate to the ark, he caught his hair on a limb and hung there for 40 days and 40 nights. And he afterward did hunger and the ravens came and they fed him. He continued. The next day, three wise men came and carried him down to the boat dock and he caught a ship to Nineveh. And when he got there, he found the Delilah sitting on the wall and he said, Chuck her in, boys. Chuck her in. Chuck her down, boys. Chuck her down. And they said, how many times should we chuck her down? Till seven times seven? And he said, nay, but 70 times seven. And they chucked her down 490 times. And she burst asunder in their midst. And they picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. And in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? <laughs> so the committee chairman suddenly interrupted the young man, the young minister, and he said to the remainder of the committee, fellas, I think we ought to call him as our minister. Um, somewhat funny, pretty bad to be honest, isn't it? Um, interesting story. Uh, and I think uh, a lot of times people today think they, they know their Bibles and they take bits and pieces of this and that and, and they kind of go way off in all of these weird tangents. And, you know, you see that and it's sad. The Apostle Paul and we're going to be in the book of Ephesians this morning, chapter one. The Apostle Paul always was always concerned that believers, disciples of Jesus Christ, would know the truth. And that's why often Paul would actually mention that in his letters. In fact, you remember when he was writing to the Corinthians in first Corinthians chapter 12, he says concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. When he was writing to the Thessalonians over in First Thessalonians consider concerning end times, he says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And so he was always concerned that the church would know the truth. In our text this morning, Paul again desires the church to know and understand some important truths. In fact, the title of today's message to know him is taken from Ephesians chapter one, verse 18, where it says that you may know that you may know. And there are things that we need to know. And so for the sake of context, I'll make some comments. But for the sake of context, let's go ahead and um, look at the scripture, picking it up in chapter one, verse 15. We'll work down through verse 23 and then we will pray. So if you're in Ephesians chapter one, verse 15 with me, please say amen. amen. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. 
the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so we have this beautiful, beautiful section of scripture. And as we begin to look at it, the context is this. Paul is writing to the Ephesians, this amazing church that that he planted and spent a lot of time there. And he's hearing that they're doing really well. And he's writing this letter to them. And in, in verses three through 14, that precedes our text today, Paul had unloaded. The scholars say that whole section is one long uh, sentence, no breaks, no pauses. It's almost without taking a breath. Paul unloaded some thoughts to them. And what he gave them was the work of the Trinity. If you go back through that section in your own time, we see that he was telling them about the love of the father, how he chose us before the foundation of the world. These are beautiful truths. In other words, before the father began to even form and create the world that he had already chosen us in Christ Jesus. And he says there, the Bible says that he predestined us, meaning he predetermined beforehand, knowing everything about us and what we would do, knowing that we would care nothing about him and live our own lives for ourselves without considering him. Before that, he still chose us in Christ Jesus. And that means that no one in this room can ever be an afterthought. But you were loved by the father before he even began. He chose you. He predestined you. And we learn way back up in that section that he also in verse six accepted you. And that's good news because it's good to be accepted, isn't it? We go through life trying to find out where we fit and what's our place. Well, it's good to know that you have already been accepted by the father. So he chose you, he predestined you, and he accepted you. Then, as it continues, Paul began to talk about the redemptive work of the Son. You can go look at this in your own time. How that we were redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Meaning we were purchased back from the slavery and the, and, and of sin. And having that weight upon us, separated from God for all eternity by the very blood of Jesus Christ. And not only that, as that section ended, he also said that we were sealed When we heard the gospel of our salvation and we believe we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That means that he's put the mark of God upon you. You are now sons and daughters of God. You belong to him. And so all of these wonderful truths that Paul laid out for them were beautiful. But now in this next section, he begins again. He takes a breath and he starts to write again without pausing. And his concern is because of all of these truths, Paul almost says, Lord, Make them to know these things for themselves. You see, there's some similarities between, I think, Calvary Clayton and Calvary Winston. Pastor Greg and I, we have this interesting relationship. Um, I have to pick on him. So you got this old guy and this young guy. (laughs) And we just get along so well. It's such a weird thing to behold. Almost like we're brothers from another mother and we don't have any issues. And when we do, we work through them. And we love the Lord, obviously, and we love serving him. And the things that are going on here, the things that are going on back in Clayton are beautiful. And and it's almost like this letter is written to you today, because in verse 15, if you notice, it says, therefore, I also after I heard these things, your faith in the Lord. I hear of these things about Calvary Chapel Fellowship of Winston and your love for all the saints. Look at Paul's heart in verse 16. I can't cease to pray, make a mention of you in my prayers, always making mentions of you in my prayers. Verse 17 and 18 sets up the, what we're going to talk about. Notice he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, the revelation and the knowledge of him, and that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened. Notice verse 18 here. It says that you may know. And that's where we're going to spend our time, that you may know. Now, before we begin The most important thing, Calvary Chapel Fellowship of Winston, 
that you know is the Lord Jesus himself, right? It is important that we know him, that we're not religious people that go through religious practices that attend church on Sunday morning for the sake of attending church and, and, and just living our lives as normal because that's not what we as disciples are called to do. No, but our lives are to be wrapped up in and be reflective of the Lord Jesus, whom we know. The early church in the book of Acts was accused of turning the world upside down because of how they live and reflected Christ. It's important that we know. And I want you to know a few things. Let me throw a few things out for you today. I have no references on the screen. I hope you have pen and pad. Write these down. Psalm 9, 10 says, Psalm chapter 9, verse 10. says, and those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Beautiful verse. Those who know his name. What, what do you call on? In time of need. What do you praise in time of joy? Let it be the name of God, the father, the name of the, the son. Because those who know him, he says, put their trust in you. And Lord, you, Lord, have not forsaken them. And we need to know that this morning. So we know that the Lord doesn't forsake us. Psalm 4610 says, be still and know that I am God. And I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In other words, be still sometimes and know that he is God and in control of everything. And then finally, 2 Peter 3.18 says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Grow in the knowledge. Paul wants the Ephesians to know some things. And he said, Lord, let them know these truths that I've already given them, that the eyes of their understanding being enlightened and that these things not just be mere truths that they speculate on or that they hear occasionally. But let it be the very thing that drives them, the very source of life, the very thing that they hang their whole life upon these truths that you have been chosen, that you have been predestined that you have been accepted, redeemed by the blood of Jesus and sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. These are beautiful. He says, let them know this. Now, there are three things specifically now that we get into it that Paul wants them to know. Write these down. Number one, in verse 18, he wants them to know the hope of his calling. OK, and we're going to look at that, the hope of his calling. Number two, in verse 18, he wants them and I want you to know the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And then in verse 19 down through verse 23, he also wants us to know the greatness of his power towards us. Y'all got me? You with me? That's a lot to cover, but we got time. So we're going to dive in first. The hope of his calling. We need to know the hope of his calling. Notice um, he says here in verse 18, read it again, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. And this is a beautiful part of the verse because the Bible actually talks a lot about hope. A lot about hope. In fact, the Bible says, listen, that we have a living hope. And the interesting thing about this, the Bible talking so much about hope is that when you think about the world, you look into the world, you look at the news, look at the things that are going on. And one of the things that you as a Christian can see very clearly is that the world is void of hope. It's clear you can on any given day look at the news and see, man, the world is without hope. It's a scary world and time that we live in. But hope becomes so important. We need to know the hope of his calling. But biblical hope is very specific. And I want to spend a few moments on it, because if you don't understand biblical hope, you might even be struggling in your walk with the Lord. What is biblical hope? Well, I got several verses. I need you to write these down. OK, first, I'm going to define what hope is. New Testament biblical hope. And I'm going to give it to you. It's Titus chapter two, verse 13. You need to write this down. Titus chapter two, verse 13. OK, here is what our hope is. How many of you know the Lord Jesus personally? Raise your hand. OK, that's most of the room. Here is your hope. Paul said to Titus, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible says we have a living hope. Paul says it's a blessed hope. And what is it? The appearing of Jesus Christ. In other words, the hope of the Christian is even as we live this life, 
occupying until he comes, the Bible says. In other words, learning to do the things that have been put before us, being good citizens, being good parents, good spouses, good workers and business owners and and doing all of the things that we have been called to do. But even as we do these things, there is a hope that should capture our heart. And it's the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we live as though he would appear today. And there are three things that that kind of hope will do for you. Okay, write these down. Number one, a biblical hope will anchor your soul in truth. In other words, it'll keep you grounded. Why do I say that? Hebrews 6, 19. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. I love that. In other words, this biblical hope we have in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ anchors us in truth and even draws us into his very presence. Entering behind the veil is an Old Testament reference to being able to go into the most holy place, which we as believers can do because the Bible says that because we are his, we can boldly come in behind the veil or into the throne to find help in time of need. So it anchors us in truth and it draws us into the very presence of God. And I'm I'm giving you this because many, many, many people in today's world and even Christians would say that, especially us as Calvary Chapel with our eschatology, that we have our minds too caught up in the things like the rapture or the coming of the Lord. And we need to get a little bit more, you know, we need to mellow out. We need to not focus on that so much. But you know what the truth is? Biblically, as I look through the whole of the New Testament and even the old, it seems to me that healthy, listen, healthy Christian living is having one eye on what I'm doing down here and one on the coming of the Lord. And that's where my heart should be, because if my heart is there, it's going to stir something on the inside of me and it's going to keep me moving. So it anchors our our soul in truth. Not only it, it aids in building endurance for this life. Why do I say that? Romans chapter 8, verse 23 through 25. Romans chapter 8, verse 23 through 25 tells us, it says, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, that's those of us who are saved, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. What is he talking about? Well, the body you're in is not redeemed. Y'all know that, right? You are saved. You are spirit filled. You are a new creation. But the body is still unredeemed and fallen. Waiting for the adoption, it says, of the body. It goes on to say, for we are uh, we were saved in this hope. What hope? He says, well, hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope here it is for what we do not see, which is the coming of Christ, we eagerly wait for it. And the word here is perseverance, but it can be translated endurance. So if our hope is that which we do not see that we want to see, which is the coming of Christ, then we wait for that. We live our lives looking for that with endurance and it produces in us endurance so that we do not turn back. We have a living hope, a blessed hope. The Bible is telling us. And we need to understand that. And finally, not only does it anchor our soul in truth, not only does it aid in building endurance, but it also furthers righteous living because 1 John 3, 3 says this, and everyone who has this hope, and John had just talked about the fact that we would see the Lord as he is and be like him when he returns. So he says, everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. And what is John saying? Here's what he's saying. If you were living with the hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the imminent return of Christ is what we believe, that he can return right now. And if you live with that hope inside of yourself, well, you ain't going to be living a life of sin. Because you're living with the consciousness that the Lord could show up any moment. And the Bible says it purifies you when you live with that hope on the inside of you. And this is the balance that the Christian must live. We need to understand that there are things before us that we must handle with diligence and care. But we must never forget that the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is our hope and it can happen now. Now. Imminent. So he says in our text. Paul says, my my concern is that the eyes of your understanding, verse 18, being enlightened, that you may know. And then the first one was, what is the hope of his calling? The hope of his calling 
is that he will call us one day out of here and we will be snatched out of here if we're living. Those if we've already passed on will be resurrected and we'll meet the Lord in the air. The Bible says that the Lord will descend from from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel. The Lord himself will descend, it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And those who are alive will be caught up to meet in the air and we will ever be with him. This is the hope of his calling. And that is so beautiful. We'll get into it. But not only that, we also need to see here the second part of our outline. Notice is what are the riches of his glory of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, look at it very closely with me. Look at verse 18 again. Notice it says, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Because at first glance, listen, at first glance, it almost sounds like what Paul is talking about is our inheritance in Christ. And if you read it fast, you'll think that. And that would be great because we have a grand inheritance in Christ, don't we? We have eternal life. We have so many things in Christ, but that's not what the verse said. Look at it again. It says here, that you may know what are the riches of the glory, notice of his Christ inheritance in the saints. In other words, what it's saying is that Christ has an inheritance in us. Had you ever thought about that? Well, when I first thought about it, it posed a problem for me. Listen very carefully. It posed a problem because if I begin to think about this, wait a minute. He has an inheritance in me. Well, we got an issue because he got a bad deal. I got a pretty good deal. My inheritance in him is, is amazing. I could spend the rest of the year talking about my inheritance in him. But the fact that he has an inheritance in me is a problem for me because it just doesn't seem to work. In fact, when I think about my life and you think about your own, it just doesn't seem that anything adds up in, on paper that would refer to anything that could be considered an inheritance for the Lord. We come in on a Sunday morning after being beat up all the previous week and you sit and you think about your life and, and you, you say, how can the Lord have an inheritance in me. And this is why, listen very carefully, it's because the Lord deals with us on the basis of our future and not our past. I would even say on the basis of our future, not our past or present. Christianity is always forward looking because in the Lord, there's always more to enjoy. There's always more to come in the Lord. You know that, amen? Listen, here how, is how we can see it in Scripture. Listen, you remember Gideon. We can call him Gideon the coward. In, G in, in Judges chapter 6, just forgive me for saying it that way, but in Judges chapter 6, the Lord shows up, the angel of the Lord, looks at Gideon, and it says, the Lord, uh, the angel said, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. How many of you remember that Scripture? Raise your hand if you remember that Scripture. Okay, that's a lot of you. Gideon looks and almost responds as in you talking to me who are you talking to because if you know the story Gideon was threshing the wheat in a hidden place not at the threshing floor and the reason is he was hiding because the the Israelites were under the oppression of the Midianites and they would come down and raid them and steal their grain so Gideon was was hiding trying to thresh enough wheat for his family in a hidden place and he looks and he says, you talking to me? He says, first of all, we're oppressed people, number one. And I'm the least of my father's house. And my father's house is the least in our tribe. And our tribe is the least in Israel. And you're looking at me saying, you mighty man of valor. Who in the world are you talking to? You can't be talking about me. And many of you sitting here this morning. And if I look at you and I say, the Lord is with you, you mighty person of valor. You might feel the same way. No, no. My life is full of mistakes and problems. And there's a sin in me that the people sitting around me don't even know about. So I can't be this mighty man of valor or this mighty woman of valor that the Lord would reference. I'm not that person. You know, the Lord would never say that of me. But you know what? The Lord deals with you not on the basis of your past or even your present, but on the basis of your future meaning on the basis of what he's going to do in you. In other words, remember, the scripture says the work that he began in you, he's faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. Do you understand that? 
And so this is how he does. Also, we see it in uh, John chapter one, verse 42, when Jesus says this, listen, Jesus says, he says, now when Jesus looked at him, talking about Peter, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So Jesus walks up to Peter and he grabs Peter and he's, and he's smiling and saying, ah, Simon, I'm going to make you into a rock. Now, when you read the scriptures, you don't really see that in the Gospels, do you? No, you don't. Y'all work with me. I can do this a couple hours. <laughs> no, you don't see Peter as a rock in the Gospels. You see Peter, the one who's always worried about things like, how are we going to pay our taxes, Jesus? You know, Peter... Who, who denied the Lord. Peter, who was getting things wrong and, and saying, Lord, you shouldn't go to the cross. And the Lord had to say, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter, the one who, when he failed, decided I'm quitting, I'm going fishing. We understand all of these things, but it's the same Peter that the Lord looked at in the beginning before he did all of those things and said, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone because of the work I'm going to do in you, Peter. Well, remember Gideon. He was a mighty man of valor. He went on to command an army for the Lord. He went on to throw down the, the, the idols of his fathers and cause a revival in his village. He went on to defeat the Midianites. And Peter went on to be an apostle of the Lord and to, to stand for him as a faithful servant to the point of death. And it's because of the inheritance, listen, that the Lord has in us. Gideon became a mighty man of valor. Peter became a stone. And it's because his disciples, listen, the Lord's disciples live in the future tense. Our lives are controlled by what we shall be when Christ returns, because we are his inheritance. We live to please and glorify him. So Paul wants us to understand the glory of the inheritance that Jesus has in us so that we can realize, listen, so that we can realize the work that he desires to do in us and that he will do and complete right up into the day that he looks at us face to face. So then where you are now is not what you need to be focused on so much as to what the scripture says and that you are in Christ and the work that he desires to do in you. So you can't listen to the voice of the enemy that brings condemnation, but you must yield to the voice of the Holy Spirit, which brings conviction that produces something godly on the inside of you. We need to understand that. The apostles were, they understood this. They were committed to preparing us for this. Paul spoke of his desire that the Christians would be presented before the Lord pure. It says in, in 2 Corinthians Eleven two. it says, for I am jealous for you with the godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband. Listen, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. This is what the apostles were attempting to do. This is what they were working on in us. And this is what is going to happen when this whole thing wraps up. Let me let me take into the book of Revelation for just a minute. In the book of Revelation, listen, the book of Revelation gives us a glimpse of what this is going to look like when it all wraps up and is glorious. Revelation 19, 6 through 9, it says this, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife, that's the church, has made herself ready. I like that. Made herself ready. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. Listen, y'all, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, when I read this, thinking about all of this, I had an issue again. Because I understand when we stand before the Lord, that we'll be clothed in his righteousness. I understand that. You've heard that before, right? That makes sense because I'm not righteous in and of myself. I'm a mess unless he does a work. And then I read these verses. His wife has made herself ready. It's been granted to her to be clothed in fine linen, clean and bright. And it says, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And I began to wonder the righteous acts of the saints. I'm sinful by nature. 
And if you were to add up all of my works on paper, it doesn't seem as though I would have much to be clothed in in heaven. And I don't know what it's going to look like when I get there. I might be in a bathing suit, you know, (laughs) instead of having a whole robe if you take my works. But it seems that Christ is going to do a work in us and he's going to be glorified in us. And we will be arrayed and decorated on that day because of what he is going to do. And you might need to get your eyes off of what you can and can't do. And draw your heart and attention to what the Lord can and will do in you if you give him all. Surrender all to him and let him do the work that he's going to do. Because when it's all said and done, he's going to look at us and he's going to see something grand. And to him, it will be an inheritance in us. The ragtag group of people meeting here this morning at Calvary Chapel Fellowship of Winston-Salem. And yes, you will stand before the Lord clothed in white and he will be pleased with the work that he completes in you. Let's wrap this up. The third point. Paul also wants us to know not just the hope of of his calling, not just the glory of his inheritance in the saints, but verse 19 And what is the exceeding greatness, he says, of his power towards us who believe. Now, this is wonderful. Now, when we think of power, his exceeding, you kind of got to get the language, too. It's almost like Paul is exhausting all of the expressive words he can come up with. Kind of, if you will, uh, kind of um, just discrediting the, the, the grammar here. And he says the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe It's almost like he's trying to use every expressive word because the human language is not enough to begin to express the power that he has towards us. Now, when we think of power, listen, we think of power. Many Christians get excited, especially on the Pentecostal side of the church, don't they? Power, the power of God, you know, and, and, and it's more than that. Listen, many Christians, here's what Spurgeon said. Many Christians do not know this power. Or they do not know it or they know it, excuse me, from a distance. But God wants resurrection life to be real in the life of the believer. The very same power which raised Christ is waiting to raise, listen, the drunkard from his drunkenness, to raise the thief from his dishonesty, to raise the Pharisee from his self-righteousness, to raise the Sadducee from his unbelief. In other words, there is the power of God towards us. And this is what we need to understand. Now, here's what Paul said would happen in the last days when he was talking to Timothy. He said, talking of the church, that in the last days, some would have a form of godliness, but denying its power and from such turn away. What was Paul getting at? Listen, the power of God towards the church begins this power that some in the last days would deny is the very power of God to change a person's life. The very power of God to take you from what you were to what he wants you to be. The very power of God that not only can save you, but can also completely transform your life from a life that's battered with sin and and, and, and devastation to a life that's filled with joy and victory. And see, the believer must both live, listen, in reliance of his power and be submitted to his perfect will at the same time, because some want to preach power, but they also want to demand God. We understand that we're submitted to his will, but there is a power that we must recognize. And if you're not recognizing that power in your life, then you may be struggling. And I want you to understand that no matter what you're struggling with, listen to me very carefully. This is Sunday morning. This is the day that the church meets all around the world. And the saddest thing possible is for someone to come in here and have a form of godliness, but deny the very power. In other words, to have a form of religion can look the part, dress the part, act the part, but not believe that the very God that we worship has the power to give you victory over that which you might struggle with, whatever that might be. And only you know that as we sit here today. He has the power to do that and he wants to do it. Listen, look at it again. Verse 19. What is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? The interesting thing is the word that Paul uses here. We know it. It's the word dunamis in the Greek, which is a dynamic of the Holy Spirit to empower you to be a witness for Jesus. 
It's a power that uh, the dynamic of the Holy Spirit that empowers you to be a witness for Jesus. We remember it from Acts chapter eight, one verse eight, where Jesus said to the disciples, he says, but you will receive power from above dunamis when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and then you shall be witnesses of me. Meaning then we will be representatives, if you will, we will reflect the Lord and how we live our life. There is a power that comes from God to do this. Now, when I think about the awakenings that have come through the Americas, um, I think about the various movements of the Holy Spirit, even the one that we are a part of or we come out of, which was the Jesus movement. There was a, a, a supernatural power of the Lord working in those movements to shake the church up, because what happens, unfortunately, is every now and then the church gets a little stuck. In, 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 the, in, the, in, in what it's doing. In fact, one commentator said recently, as I was reading um, a recent interview, uh, that one of the denominations that came out of the Jesus movement is Calvary Chapel. And he said, whoa, he said he called us a denomination. Did you catch that? We've never called ourselves a denomination. But it's been 50 something years. We're beginning to be, be, to be looked at as a denomination. And many of the, the mainstream denominations that we look at today and we wonder what they're doing, like the Methodists, for instance, were powerhouse parts of movements of the previous awakenings. And you let 200 years go by and everything can cooling. And if, if you could dig up some of the old guys, Wesley uh, and, 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 and Jonathan Edwards and Whitfield and a lot of the guys, Finney, and let them see what those groups are doing today, they would scratch their heads. And here's the thing, Calvary Chapel, we must never, ever, ever get stuck in routines and forms of religion and forget that our movement came birthed out of a move of the Holy Spirit where the power of the Holy Spirit was prevalent to change lives, where drug addicts were getting sober and drunkards were getting sober and coming off of those things and turning their whole lives over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, listen, the Bible's very clear. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He does not change. So even as you sit there, the power of God to change your life is ever present. And we must never forget that. We must understand this. His power towards us who believe. So then what does he want to do in your life personally? Maybe you don't know yet. I pray that he would reveal it to you. Maybe you do know. I pray that you would have the faith to walk it and surrender to it. God wants to do something in you individually, and he wants to do some amazing things with this church in this city. The lady at the hotel told me she knew about this church. That blessed me. Yeah, I know that church. Now, look, how is his power displayed? We've got an hour, about an hour and 30 minutes left if, I, if my glasses are right. <laughs> how is this power shown to us? Verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power. Well, how do we begin to see it? Verses 20 through 23 gives us a couple things. Number one, we see it in the fact that he raised Christ up. Look at verse 20. Um, as we look at verse 20, it says, um, which he worked in Christ when he raised him. Notice it says from the dead. I love that. He raised Christ up. That's the first way we begin to see this power. And it's been said by this. It's been said if, if the death of Christ is the supreme demonstration of the love of God. Because the Bible says he demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Right. We know that. Well, if that's the demonstration of his love, then listen, the resurrection of Christ is the supreme demonstration of his power. The resurrection, listen, was not for Christ's benefit alone, though. It wasn't for his benefit alone. Look, Jesus doesn't need to be resurrected. He is eternal. He is God. He only became man to redeem us. The Bible says that he was made a little bit lower than the angels for a little time that he may take his body and lay it down in payment for our sin. Therefore, his death was for our sin. His resurrection is for our eternity and our victory. We benefit from his resurrection and we see God's power in this first that Christ died for us, but was raised again. Why does that bless us? Because the Bible tells us that Christ the first fruit, and then afterward, those who are his, meaning that Jesus is the beginning of the resurrection. And if Christ was raised, then what we see is that we, too, will be raised up. 
John says, we don't know what we shall be. In other words, it ain't completely clear yet. But what we know is that when we when he returns and we see him, we will see him as he is because we will be like him. Well, I like that. When I look at the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, that's some good news. You ever see in the resurrection in the Gospels where Jesus was just kind of having fun at the end? The boys, the disciples hiding out in the upper room. Y'all better not. Because, I mean, I'm looking at four o'clock already. Y'all better not. <laughs> Christ, the, the boys hiding in the upper room after the resurrection and Jesus just pops in the room, doors being locked. Y'all remember that? Full of life, full of joy. Here is the, the, here's the demonstration of the power of God. Jesus was raised from the dead. And if he was raised from the dead, then that means that you will be raised from the dead. So what does the power of the resurrection do? The power of the resurrection, listen, should and hopefully has just taken away all fear that you may previously have had for death, about death. All of that fear should be gone. See, when I was a young person, I was afraid of death because I grew up looking at a lot of horror movies. Anybody used to look at a lot of horror movies other than me? I used to love horror movies. That was just a big deal. I looked at all of them. I remember Salem's Lot, which is funny to look at now. Anybody know that movie? Oh, my Lord. I was, that movie just freaked me out. And then Night of the Living Dead, my favorite, a classic. Anybody remember that one? They're coming to get you, Barbara. Y'all don't remember that one? Oh, that was fun stuff. And I was always afraid of death. I would go to funerals and in the South, I don't know how many of you are from North Carolina or from the South? A few of you. Okay. If you're not from here and you haven't been to a funeral, let me prepare you. One of the things you may encounter about North Carolina funerals is that at the end of the funeral, if they haven't tortured you enough, while you're singing the last song, they push the casket up the, the main aisle and you think, okay, it's all over. No, then they park the casket by the front door and open it again, and you got to look again as you go out. And I was afraid of death, so that used to freak me out. I was a little boy, and I, I, I would sneak out the back door of the church because I was so afraid of death. And this is the thing. Listen very carefully. This is the thing that God has done. God has taken all of that fear from me because of the resurrection of Christ. Though we die, we shall live. I will never die. Listen, you as a believer, you will never taste of death because as soon as the, the breath of the soul leaves your body, you'll be in the very presence of the Lord. Just like when Jesus told the story of Lazarus and the, and the rich man in Luke chapter 16 and the rich man died and, and Jesus didn't tell us what happened to him. But when Lazarus died, the beggar who believed in God, he was instantly escorted into the presence of God by a whole escort of angels. It's like Jesus loves us so much. He sends a whole regiment of angels to escort you in to his very presence. There is no momentary separation from God. There is no fear in death. There is no victory in the grave because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, look, not only do we live with these beautiful truths that, man, I've, I've been chosen by God, predestined even. I'm accepted by him redeemed by the blood of Christ, sealed with the very Holy Spirit of promise, which means that the enemy sees that I belong to the most high. All of that, but not only of that, I don't even have to fear death. I can live to the fullest because death has nothing in me. I can drive by the graveyard and look and realize I will never live there. I'm free. I'm redeemed. This is the first thing we must understand when we look at the power that he has towards those of us who believe. Not only that, not only that, not only did he just raise Christ up, but look at the next part of this. He has glorified him because he raised him up. Notice it says he seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all principality. I love that. All principality means any, any majesty or any, any angelic rule, if you will. Um, notice he says empower. You notice that there? Y'all notice that? It means all authority. And then he says, and might and dominion. Might means power and resources arising from numbers as in an army. And dominion means lordship. And so he's describing, listen, he's describing that any, any of those things, he's seated Christ above it. And all of this is a reference, y'all. Listen, it's a reference to the, the demonic order of angels. Satan being the little God of this world, as we'll see, even the prince of the power of the air, as you'll see over in Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians 310 says this to the intent that now 
unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Ephesians 6, 12 says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So he's describing Christ's position now being far above all demonic order and rule. And in that we see his power as well, because that means that Jesus is above all and therefore the enemy has no power and authority over your life. Now, maybe, listen, sometimes this is a truth that we don't always recognize. Now, maybe in times past, maybe in times past you were a slave to sin. And maybe your vice was substance, an addiction. Or maybe it was sexual immorality. Maybe it was just fear and depression. Maybe it was a combination of all of those things. But Christ has been raised above all principality and power and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And today the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is present to heal you of anything of your past that your flesh desires to go back to. Jesus can free you of it. Amen. And he says that it's not only in this age. Look at it again with me. Not only in this age, verse 21 but also in that which is to come. It's translated world. In other words, Jesus is seated above them, not only in this age, but in even in that, not this world, but even that world which is to come. He is all powerful and he is over all things. And not only do we see his power in the resurrection, do we see his power in his position, which we are seated with him, the Bible says. We are positioned in Christ above all of those things. You gotta catch that. You currently, as a born again believer, are positioned spiritually in Christ, even though you sit here in these pews. That means that you are seated with him in heavenly places above all of those things. And we see his power in that. And not only that, that he has given him a church is what we see as we go on. He's put all things on his feet and gave him to be noticed head over all things to the church. We love that. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. He's placed Christ as head over everything and even the church. You belong into Jesus today. Seated with him in heavenly places. In his eyes, precious and special. And so I say to you as we get ready to close with just a few minutes left, I say to you that it doesn't matter what you think about yourself. Your assessment of yourself is inaccurate. It's inaccurate. It's either false humility or it's pride. Your assessment of yourself is inaccurate. Scripture says, though, Scripture says that he loves you, he has redeemed you, and you are seated with him in heavenly places. He's begun to work in you. He's going to continue to work on you, sanctification process, until he completes that work, that you may be conformed to his image when this is all said and done. And it doesn't matter where you are today, Jesus will not fail in the work and the ministry that God has given him. And so there's a there's an issue we have. I look at myself and I don't measure up to what this is saying about me, but not to worry. He's working on me. And so today I just simply say, well, thank you, Jesus. I am yours. I am your beloved. And you will fight for me. You will keep me and you will come for me. Does it mean, as the prosperity teachers teach, that you will have your best life now and everything will be perfect? No, that's a heresy. Does it mean that every situation is going to be perfect and you're not going to go through anything? No, that's not biblical because these are the things that he uses to mold and shape us. But it does say that in the midst of everything that you will go through, he will be there with you, strengthening you and leading you. And walking you through it, that on every side of a trial, when you get on the other side of every trial, you'll look back and see the work that he's done on the inside of you. And you will glorify him for it. Because at the end of this, we will stand in heaven. Let me leave you with this. Romans chapter 8. Everybody turn over to Romans chapter 8. And we'll end in Romans chapter 8. One verse I want to show you. Give me one more verse. Romans 8. Verse 18. Romans 8, 18. Paul says this. He says, for I consider that the suffering of this present time, the time we live in, 
The sufferings notice, plural, you see that? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This word worthy, it speaks of quality. In other words, the sufferings of this age are not even, they don't even stack up. You can't even begin to compare them and put them on the same scale with the glory that he's going to reveal in us when we stand before him and with him in the next age. In other words, what he's going to do is so far grander that you can't even begin. Ladies, look, if you go out in the, in the parking lot and you dig up a piece of the asphalt, it's like taking that asphalt and then weighing its value against a diamond the same size. Can you do that? No, it doesn't even make sense to do that, does it? And that's what Scripture's saying. We can't even begin to compare what he's going to do with anything that we can suffer on this side. We shouldn't even look at them in the same light. There is a glory that he's going to reveal in you. It's going to be so splendid. Eternity is going to be far beyond what we can begin to think of. The work that Christ is going to do in us is going to be brilliant. So I tell you today, your assessment of yourself, inaccurate. Get rid of it. Look at what scripture says. Surrender your heart and mind to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him do the work that he wants to do in you. And in that you will find the greatest joy of your life. Don't wrestle with it. Don't fight. Give in to the Lord. Let him have his way. His way is better than our way. His, his joys are better than anything that we could find upon our, on our own in this world. What he wants to do is so much peaceful and so much grander than anything that we could do. Let him have his way this week in your life. Amen. If the worship team would come up, bow your heads. We're going to pray. Father, we do thank you that you have met us here, that your word is alive. And as it has gone forth, Lord, that it has entered into our hearts and into our minds, that it would be, I pray it would be written upon the tables of our hearts, that our, the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that it would be revealed to us more and more as the week goes forth, that it would continue to produce fruit on the inside of us, Lord God, transforming even the way that we think and even the way that we see ourselves that you would have a full, full opportunity in us this week to show us new things. Lord, draw us into a closer walk with you. I pray that you would be with each person in this sanctuary as they go through their week, keeping them in their cars, their, their homes, and their places of employment, the cubicle, the schools, the labs, the shops, and the marketplaces even. Speaking to them bringing them comfort, giving them direction. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we say together, amen. Let's stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.